recently I was at the gym. I ran into a brother in Christ that I know, but I didn't know we actually went to the same gym. So after a brief conversation, he informed me that he was focused that morning on the old treadmill. Guess old things still work. Seeking to do the same thing most people do when they go to a gym, to work out. On that morning, I saw him, I saw him on the treadmill training. He said he was training in order to hike Yosemite in about six weeks. I asked how it was going, and his only comment to me was, I'm having zero fun, but I am making slow progress. Why do people go to the gym? Why do they even work out if it isn't fun? Why do most people choose to remain status quo in their non-exercise choice for a lifestyle? Well, because it's hard work. There's the need for that nasty D word, isn't it? Discipline. Discipline to get up in the morning. Discipline to carve out enough time to do it each week. And discipline to stick with it. That's why most people don't consider exercise a fun adventure because of the chronic temptation to quit. Anyone who has spent any number of hours or years in the gym understands that if you're going to work out, you have got to have perseverance, a sticking with it kind of attitude if you're actually going to meet any substantial goals. And like anything else in life that has challenges, physical training can also bring with it frustration. Uh, frustration that can come from not seeing the results that you have eagerly set for yourself. And maybe you haven't met the results in the exact timing that you had envisioned. Nonetheless, many continue this weekly activity, uh, not because it's fun, but because of the progress you make, even if that progress seems slow at first. For my friend, it was in preparation for a hiking goal over a vast outdoor terrain. For others, it might be to lose weight, yet for others, it might simply be to gain muscle. Either way, whether we are elite athletes or we are trying to hike Yosemite in our 40s or we're simply trying to fit into our genes from a year ago, we train our bodies through exercise and diet in order to get in better physical shape, to get leaner, to get stronger. A physical strength certainly has its benefits. There's really no debate about that. But spiritual strength does too. The Apostle Paul once instructed his young protege in ministry, Timothy, about the importance of training. And he does this by comparing the value that physical training, so exercise, physical training, also as compared to spiritual training or spiritual discipline. Now listen carefully to what Paul tells Timothy in 1 Timothy 4, verses 7 to 10. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. For to this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. According to Paul here, he says that physical training or physical exercise does have its benefits. But these benefits are limited. They are helpful. They have some value, he says. Nonetheless, physical training can only take us so far. In the grand scheme of our fleeting lives, in our aging bodies, physical training only has temporal rewards. Yet on the other hand, Paul makes the persuasive argument that spiritual discipline is greater in importance than physical discipline because of what it produces. Not to mention, what really is at stake when it comes to being used by the living God 
for his purposes. In 1 Timothy 4, Paul instructs Timothy, and really by implication to us today as well, by stating that godliness or Christ-like character, Christ-like living is the results of spiritual discipline. And then he also mentions eternal life, the life to come. This is the ultimate result of having a spiritually-minded focus. What is the life to come Paul speaks about? This is life with God in unbroken fellowship forever. You see, when our faith rests in Jesus, Paul says that we live for God and we minister to others with our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. In other words, the reason why we are alive this morning, the reason why you and I are on this planet, and the reason why God sent his son, Jesus Christ, to die for our salvation is to awaken our sense of need for him, to awaken inside each one of us a deep, abiding thirst for God, a self-conscious awareness of our sin against him and our dire need for his mercy and ever-growing recognition of our finite creatureliness and daily dependence upon the richness of God's mercy. And friends, God uses all sorts of things in our lives to bring about this thirst for God, doesn't he? He has many tools in his tool belt to awaken in each one of us a deep, abiding thirst for God. So let me give you some theological frameworks here. God is sovereign, total control over all things. He knows all things. He can do all things. He is in all places at all times because he is God. Yet he will never tempt anyone to sin, nor does he ever take pleasure in evil. But whatever evil we face in this life does not separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Whatever evil that Satan or those whom the devil has blinded from seeing the truth about Jesus has intended to do against us for harm, God, because he is sovereign, can turn that evil for good. As you read both in the Old and New Testaments, we see this reality practically spray-painted all over the walls of the Bible. God will use sickness and suffering. He'll use rude interruptions and corrupt injustices. He'll use bad weather and he'll use bad news. He'll use dark and perplexing providences, including the dreadful possibility of an unwanted death. God is able to use anything in his world to get our attention back on him. As J.I. Packer once said, God uses chronic pain and weakness along with other afflictions as his chisel for sculpting our lives. Felt weakness deepens dependence on Christ for strength each day. The weaker we feel, the harder we lean. As we'll see in our psalm this morning, the Lord will even use the painful presence and agonizing thorns of ungodly people. At times, he will actually use like tools in his tool belt, selfish and arrogant people who pride themselves of living independently of trusting God in order to humble us, to bring us, his children, low, to turn our eyes back up to him. And friends, the Lord will do all this in the lives of his people in order to show us that apart from God's help and strength, we can do nothing. That apart from the grace he provides by his spirit, we cannot produce 
or do anything in our lives of any spiritual value to bring him glory. And apart from God, we cannot experience the fullness of joy and energizing strength that Jesus offers in himself until we wean ourselves off the false God of self-reliance. So how do we grow spiritually? How does anyone, for that matter, become stronger in their relationship with the Lord? Among several important spiritual disciplines, we gain strength and help from God through prayer. If you have a copy of God's Word, please open your Bibles to Psalm 86. Psalm 86. If you're using one of the chair Bibles provided, you can find that on page 283. If you don't have a Bible at home that you can read, you can take that Bible and the chair as a gift from our church to you. Psalm 86. As I've stated previously before, we're taking a break from our study in the Gospel of Mark. Lord willing, we'll revisit there. Uh, Be back in the Mark uh, later this fall. Uh, This morning, we find ourselves in a prayer of intense dependence. This psalm is really the mosaic picture of a godly man, and you could also say a godly woman for that matter, calling upon the mercy of God in a time of desperate need. A prayer of David. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. There is none like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord my God, with my whole heart. And I will glorify your name forever. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. O God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. But you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Turn to me and be gracious to me, Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. This is God's word. Here we see the human author of this psalm is David. Right there in the superscription, a prayer of David. We're not told specifically what the specific historical context of the psalm is, whether this is the time when King Saul was jealously pursuing David in the wilderness, or when his son Absalom would want to usurp his throne later in life, or maybe this is just some other time in David's life where he was facing hardships from hateful men, maybe even in part because of his own sin and foolishness. Uh, Either way, we know a few things for certain that we can nail down about this psalm. Uh, First, this is a prayer. 
This is a prayer. So if, if you are new to praying, my freebie encouragement to you is this. Learn to pray by praying Scripture back to God. Learn to pray by praying Scripture back up to God. So if you don't know what to say, God's already given us the perfectly inspired word in how to pray. We know that this is a prayer from what we read in verse 6. Look with me what David says. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Now, what is prayer? Uh, To put it simply, prayer is communicating and communing with the one true and living God. Prayer is communicating and communing with the one true and living God. Uh, This psalm also reveals that this is a prayer of petition or a prayer of supplication. David here utters about a dozen or so petitions to God. These are cries for help. This is David's 911 button over and over and over again until somebody picks up, and the one he's wanting to pick up is not an operator, but God. These are cries for help. These are pleas from a fallible and weak man just like us that's being prayed in an urgent and intense fashion. Again, listen afresh to these urgent supplications he gives to God. Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me. Preserve my life. Save your servant. Be gracious to me. Gladden the soul of your servant. Give ear, O Lord, to my prayer. Listen to my plea for grace. Teach me your way. Unite my heart to fear your name. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant. Save the son of your maidservant. Show me a sign of your favor. To that end, David is modeling what should characterize all of us who call ourselves servants of the living God. For all of us who would heed Paul's command of Timothy to train ourselves for the purpose of godliness. Uh, Friends, if there's one thing the church today needs to hear again is the call to persistent and persevering prayer. Persistent and persevering prayer. That means prayer that does not easily give up. And that's what David here models for us. A man who is persistently and persevering in prayer. And David also models for us what humility before God looks like when we pray. Out of his humble assessment of who he is, in light of who God is, David, did you notice what he calls himself? A servant. A servant of the Lord. In fact, he says it three times. Verse 2, verse 4. And verse 16, Uh, kind of as an aside here, if you listen carefully to my pastoral prayer every week, you probably have it down packed on the categories I pray. I don't mind being utterly predictable. It's catechizing you more than you think it is. But one thing you will notice before I begin preaching, my last petition is super intentional. Speak, Lord. Your servants are listening. Yes, that is a reference to 1 Samuel 3.10. However, that is my effort to train my heart and to train your heart to approach God as humble servants. Friends, we never demand God to do anything. We humbly approach him, pleading as a servant would to a master a good master, humble servants who are eager to hear what he has to say to us over what other people have to say to us, even what our own hearts are saying to us. And as a servant, David attributes to God the title or name of Adonai. Seven times in this psalm, Verses 3 to 5, verses 8 and 9, verses 12 and 15, David calls on God as Adonai. Uh, This is that name attributed to God in the Scriptures as the Sovereign One or the Sovereign Master 
over all creation. Uh, God as owner and master, the scriptures declare that God is committed to care for his people and provide for their needs. And therefore, as servants of the master, we who trust in him can commit ourselves to serve him wholeheartedly because he will provide for us. So David here, as a servant of the sovereign master, is being brought to a place of desperation. And as God brings him low, he realizes that God is his only hope and comfort. Whether he lives or whether he dies. Whether he survives or whether he has many years ahead. He says there in verse 13, the Lord had delivered him from the depths of Sheol. This is the abode of the dead. David had some near-death experiences quite often. And he knew who to give credit to when he stayed alive. Friends, do you view God as your master? Do you view God as your sovereign master who rules over your life, but also a good master that cares for you? It's good for us to be reminded this morning of that well-known question raised in the Heidelberg Catechism. Question, what is your only comfort in life and death? Answer, that I am not my own, but belong with body and soul, both in life and in death, to my faithful Savior, Jesus Christ. He has fully paid for all my sins with his precious blood and has set me free from all the power of the devil. He also preserves me in such a way that without the will of my heavenly Father, not a hair can fall from my head. Indeed, all things must work together for my salvation. Therefore, by his Holy Spirit, he also assures me of eternal life and makes me heartily willing and ready from now on to live for him. Friends, to serve a perfect master is not bondage, but freedom. To serve a perfect master is not bondage, but freedom. Any other master we place in our hearts or in our lives above Adonai, whether it be money or sex, Sports or hobbies, politicians or preachers, or simply longing for the approval of a fallible person that will one day die. It's only going to lead us to misery, deception, and a trap in the end. That's why Jesus, when he taught his own disciples, and he challenges us as well, that we should be heavenly minded while we live on this earth. If we want to be of earthly good, we need to keep our gaze on what's ahead. In fact, Jesus said we must be heavenly minded with what we do with money and wealth in particular. For where our treasure is, there our hearts will be also. Uh, Jesus said in Matthew 6, 24, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Secondly, in this psalm, we learn how David finds himself in a time of deep distress. Uh, look with me in verse 7. We see David summarize his predicament that has drawn him to the throne of grace. He says in verse 7, In the day of my trouble, I call upon you, for you answer me. The word trouble there can mean affliction or distress. It means really any outside influence in your life that begins to squeeze you. Any type of trial, or the New Testament word is tribulation, philipsis, a thorny relationship in your life that makes you feel like you're going to suffocate emotionally, suffocate spiritually. Have you ever been there? You have prayed that God would either convert someone or get them out of your life. 
Do you find yourself in this type of predicament or thorny relationship even right now? Maybe it's not someone in your life. Maybe it's other challenges that are pressing in on you. Maybe finances are getting tight. You don't know where the money is going to come from to pay next month's bills. Or your kids. Maybe your kids don't want to have anything to do with you, whether they're still in the home or out of the home. And you have no idea how to recover and strengthen this relationship with them. Or maybe your boss is constantly wishy-washy. You're constantly unsettled of whether you'll even have a job at the end of this year, maybe even this month. At whatever suffocating or squeezing circumstance you might be in, just know that this squeezing is common to everyone. Indeed, that was the testimony that the apostles would encourage and teach young disciples. So if you meet someone who's a new Christian, you're like, what should I teach a new Christian? Well, study the, one of the Gospels would be excellent. But amidst all the things that you can teach them about following Jesus, make sure you put this in your toolbox. Acts 14.22, this is what the apostles taught young Christians. Through many tribulations, distresses, troubles, pressures, squeezings, through many tribulations, we must enter the kingdom of God. So what type of trouble was David in? What type of squeezing or suffocating does he reveal in this psalm? Look with me over to verse 14. Psalm 86, verse 14. He gives us a little sneak peek into what he's referring to. He says, Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life, and they do not set you before them. Specifically, David acknowledges to God that there are men in his life wanting to do him harm. Men who are malicious. Men who oppose him. David calls them insolent and ruthless. Uh, They're arrogant. They're unappeasable. They're full of themselves. And David says they rise up against him. In other words, they don't keep their pride to themselves. They spew it out on him. This opposition, too, is one of violence and terror. That's why he was even thinking that maybe his time was up on earth there in verse 13 about Sheol. These men wanted to do more than just ruin his reputation with slander or false witness. That's child's play for them. They wanted to take his life. To add to that suffocating squeeze, David describes this day of trouble as more than just a one-to-one scuffle with someone in the workplace. More than just a one-to-one scuffle with some random person in Israel. In fact, he says it's a band of ruthless men. Not a marching band, though great if you're in it. No, this word band could be translated a crowd, an assembly, a congregation, or even a company of people. It's the same word used in the book of Numbers of Korah's rebellion. It's the same idea in the Gospels with a crowd antagonizing and attacking Jesus. These malicious men are not even specifically named in this psalm, though. David doesn't find it all that important to mention their names. But David knows that God knows. David knows that God knows. That's why at the end of this psalm, that even though these men hate David, David is entrusting his soul to his faithful creator, like Jesus. David is entrusting his reputation, his livelihood, his future, and his very life to his sovereign master, Adonai, to his covenant keeping God, Yahweh, who promises to vindicate his servant and show off his glory even through David's suffering. Notice with me what he begins to pray in verse 16. Turn to me and be gracious to me. Give your strength to your servant and save the son of your maidservant. 
Show me a sign of your favor that those who hate me may see and be put to shame because you, Lord, have helped me and comforted me. Brothers and sisters, as you follow Jesus, don't be surprised if others do not accept you because you follow Jesus. God may put you in situations with your family or in the community with people you thought were Christians, but really the fruit shows that they never were. Maybe they mock you. Maybe they make fun of you. They take advantage of you. Maybe they genuinely want to do you harm. That's what their heart wants to do. God may deliver you from that. He may take you out of a job, a toxic environment. He may get you out of an abusive household. He may do that. God is merciful, and we should pray that God would. But God also might say, stay right where you are. Plant some roots. Let Christ in you blossom in front of the darkness. Friends, be reminded again. Romans 2 verse 4 says it's the kindness and forbearance of God that leads sinners to repentance. Friends, when we show long-suffering, and patience, and forbearance with sinners. God uses patience radiating through us sometimes to lead them to repentance. Friends, think about your own salvation. Some of you were super stubborn when you were really young, and your parents and grandparents prayed down heaven's gates that one day you would be a Christian. Well, guess what? Some of those dear saints who prayed for you are dead and gone. But now we get to enjoy the fruits of a new creature. Think of the patience. Think of the kindness of God to give each one of us men and women of God who showed so much long-suffering when we were super sinful and foolish. As Christians, our witness to unbelievers always begins with winning or losing the war right here. As we wage war against sin in our own hearts first, God will bear witness through us to either bring our opponents to shame or our opponents to repentance. And this is what Peter said in 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak evil against you as evildoers, that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Back to Psalm 86. Uh, This psalm from start to finish is a prayer. It's an urgent and an intense prayer. And it's a prayer that should instruct each one of us of what it means to become strong in the Lord. Why is that? We only become strong in the Lord when we wean ourselves off the false god of self-reliance. If there's a main idea for this summer and you want to jot down, this would be it. Earnest prayer is self-reliance leaving the heart. Earnest prayer is self-reliance leaving the heart. And notice I said earnest Intense, all-absorbing, passionate. This is a prayer that is constant and concentrated on God, on God and his attributes. And this is a prayer that is honest and vulnerable about someone's troubles and pain. And yet, even in David's honesty, even in David's vulnerability, He remains God-centered and God-exalting in his prayer. Brothers and sisters, does your prayer life sound like that? Did your prayer life this past week sound anything like Psalm 86? Did my prayer life this week sound anything like Psalm 86. 
When life isn't going great, do we find ourselves clinging to God like we see David do in Psalm 86? Or if we're honest, when life isn't going great, is prayer the first thing that goes out of the window? Is prayer the last resort we go to when all other means fail? Friends, I totally understand that prayer is not always easy. Prayer is hard work. Just like exercise is hard work and not always fun, to discipline ourselves, to persevere in prayer is war time communicating with God. But even more than that, you know why prayer is so hard? Because it takes humility to acknowledge our need for God. Did you catch what verse 3 says? All the day. You know what that means in Hebrew? All the day. Every day, all the time, we need him. You see, the men that wanted to take David's life out, these were not men of prayer. They were not men who feared God. They were not men who recognized and worshiped God as their Adonai. They were men who prided themselves of living independently of God. You say, how do you make such a bold claim there, Blake? How do we know that? Look again closely at Psalm 86, verse 14. How do we know these were prayerless men? Oh God, insolent men have risen up against me. A band of ruthless men seeks my life. And they do not set you before them. You know what that literally means? They do not let guide, God guide their life. They do not let God guide their life. They have no regard and no respect and no repentance to humbly acknowledge they are servants to Adonai. But beloved, before we get self-righteous and think we're just like David, friends, left to ourselves, everybody in the human race, left to our natural state, does not put God first in their life. Don't you recall what Romans 3 says when Paul indicts the whole human race? Romans 3, starting in verse 10, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Friends, lost people hope in false gods. Lost people hope in false gods. Only those sinners whom God has sought out and converted will ever seek the one true and living God of Scripture. So, beloved, this is the contrast in this psalm between David and these hateful men of a man who fears God and others who do not. If you want to find out how spiritually strong someone is, look at their prayer life. If you want to know how spiritually strong someone really is, look at their prayer life. Not how good they are at debating, not how eloquent they are when they speak, not how many degrees they have, not how many Sunday school classes, Bible studies, or sermons they've taught, not how many YouTube videos or blogs they produce about the Bible. No, look at their prayer life. That's when God separates the men from the boys. That's when God separates the women from the girls. That's when God separates the hypocrites from the humble servants who truly trust in God. Do not judge a man's ministry by his pulpit alone. Judge it by the prayer closet. Jesus warned his disciples of the Pharisees. Their public prayers were loud and proud and in pretense, and yet they were twofold sons of hell. He says, as for you, go into the closet, to that secret place, and seek me. Friends, you want to see how strong someone is in their relationship with God? Look at their prayer life.
prayer is where all Christians begin. God gives us his spirit, and we call upon him as our father. That's what Jacob read earlier in Romans 8. God gives us his spirit, and the first thing we do as Christians is call upon God as our father. That's that's the testimony of every true Christian here. And if you're not a Christian, that could be your testimony today. You can call God your father. But maybe you're here this morning, and prayer is something you're having a hard time with. You're frustrated with it. You're not sure if prayer actually changes anything. Maybe you found yourself saying things like this this week. What do I do if I don't feel like praying? My prayer life is feeling pretty dry. I feel convicted by this psalm. I haven't prayed much lately. I feel like I'm talking to the ceiling most days. Is prayer actually going to change anything? Among many wonderful things we learn in this psalm, Psalm 86 does show us the vital importance of earnest prayer. So if you're taking notes, I know this is what you've been waiting for. I'm not utterly predictable all the time. Sometimes I wait till the middle of the sermon to tell you. I've got three points of answering the question, why should I pray? Why should I pray? Three reasons. We should earnestly pray to God, number one, because God is utterly trustworthy and exceedingly gracious. God is utterly trustworthy and exceedingly gracious. That's verses one to seven. Number two, God alone is worthy of our worship and our heart's greatest devotion. God alone is worthy of our worship and our heart's greatest devotion. That's verses eight to 13. Number three, God is always willing and able to help you, even when others who oppose God oppose you. God is always willing and able to help you, even when others who oppose God oppose you. That's verses 14 to 17. Look at that first one. God is utterly trustworthy and exceedingly gracious. Did you notice there in verse 2 how David calls himself godly? David then expounds upon what he means by this identity simply by saying he trusts in God. Look at verse 2 again. Preserve my life, for I am godly. Save your servant who trusts in you. You are my God. That word godly can also be translated faithful or saint. It just simply means someone that God has set apart by his grace for his own holy purposes. Again, God had set apart David as an anointed king of Israel. That was unique and special and never to be repeated in our lives. But God also set apart David as one of his beloved servants and sons like us. This is that same spiritual dog tag, if you will, that all Christians wear, that we can wear with joy around our necks. I think about virtually the whole New Testament. How are the Christians addressed in the first few verses of almost every New Testament letter? The saints, the godly, the faithful ones who are in Christ Jesus. Again, I want you to listen carefully how Paul, similar to David, is encouraging the believers in Corinth. That is what he says in 1 Corinthians 1, verses 2 and 3. To the church of God that is in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus, called to be saints, just means godly again, together with all those who in every place call upon the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, both their Lord and ours. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord. Jesus Christ. Simply put, the godly call upon the name of the Lord. The godly call upon the name of the Lord. So when David says, I am godly, he's not boasting. He's not being arrogant. He's simply acknowledging that God is his God and he trusts him. That's what the godly will do. Godly people pray to their God. Friends, they will look to the God of Holy Scripture and discover, as we all have, that he is utterly trustworthy and exceedingly gracious. In fact, the whole first section of this psalm is David humbly and candidly identifying himself as someone who needs mercy and grace. David's not tooting his own horn. David's realizing he knows where to go for mercy and grace. 
And David describes himself who, who wasn't accepted by God based off his own merit or goodness, but as someone who was accepted into the beloved based off the mercy and grace of God towards him. Did you notice how David began this prayer in verse 1? Incline your ear, O Lord, and answer me, for I am poor and needy. Again, look at verses 3 and 4. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for to you do I cry all the day. Gladden the soul of your servant, for to you, O Lord, do I lift up my soul. Before David would utter any of these requests, did you notice he acknowledged that he was poor and needy? He went to God who could revive and make happy his dusty and cold soul. Those words could even be translated vulnerable and downtrodden. As someone who is bankrupt of resources, but looking to God because he's rich in mercy. Friends, who does that sound like? Isn't that exactly what our Lord Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount? Who are the kind of people that Jesus welcomes to his table and calls his friend? Matthew 5, starting in verse 3, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Jonathan Edwards once said, you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin that made it necessary. What do we attribute to our salvation? Only the sin that made it necessary. To my non-Christian friend, you may think that Christianity is for weak people who need a crutch in life, for irrational people that need prayer as some kind of placebo effect for stresses in life. You might think that Christians are behind the times. Science answers everything we need to know. And so you conclude, we don't need God. We can live independently. We don't need our thoughts and our plans and our prayers to some invisible God we can't see. Friend, if that's you here this morning, I just want to remind you, we love you enough to tell you the truth. We are all bankrupt. We are all desperate. It's only the fact that some of us have come to realize it sooner than others. We know that because we know what our greatest need is. We know what our greatest need is because of the bad news that God has said about us. The bad news is that we are sinners against a holy God that deserve punishment. We are like the men in our own hearts that oppose David, like the men who would eventually oppose our Lord Jesus Christ. We deserve punishment far greater than any human court could give us. You see, God gave us life. He gave you life. And that life is not meant to be wasted. That life is to be meant to be lived for him. Friends, David here in verse 2, did you notice how he prayed, preserve my life, save your servant? Friends, when you recognize that you are a sinner before a holy God, every time we recognize our need, we join David in this prayer, preserve me, save me. Isn't that what Paul told the Romans? And Roman Christians in Romans 10, starting in verse 12, for there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Friend, turn from your sins. Stop seeking false gods, the false god of self-reliance being the number one, and turn to the God who made you. Put your faith in the Son, Jesus Christ, he gave as a ransom for our sin, and that he raised three days later from the grave. Turn from your sins and begin to seek God and the abundant life we were made to live. Brothers and sisters, we too should continue to call upon God in prayer regardless of how old we are, especially when our souls are weary. If you're anything like me, life gets busy. When you get tired, the first thing you think is, I need a vacation. I need to escape, you know, veg out on the TV. 
Friends, what we might need to do is seek God in prayer. When life gets hard, when life gets busy, and you start feeling suffocated and squeezed, we should call upon the Lord all the day. J.C. Ryle said, time may be short, but time is always long enough for prayer. Do you find yourself anxious this morning? Do you feel like your life is being squeezed? Your life is busy, too busy to pray? Listen to Paul Miller's counsel. Learning to pray doesn't offer us a less busy life. It offers us a less busy heart. We should pray because God is utterly trustworthy and exceedingly gracious. The second reason we should pray is God alone is worthy of our worship and our heart's greatest devotion. David then moves from speaking about himself and his needs to drawing our attention to God's greatness, God's transcendence, God's supremacy as the most important being in all the universe. There in verse 8, David extols God as far superior in power and wisdom than all the other so-called gods of this world. In other words, David says there are no works, there are no paintings, there are no buildings in all of human existence that compare to God's creation. In verse 9, David praises God as the creator and sustainer of the whole inhabited world. In fact, did you notice David says that all the nations... That includes the Gentiles too, find their source of existence because of God decreeing them to be alive. In fact, David goes one step higher by taking himself and us one massive step further. David envisions a day well beyond himself, a day that all nations, the nations that God has made, will worship him. Look what he says in verses 9 to 10. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name. For you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Friends, this is what the Great Commission is all about. Seeing a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation worship Jesus. Declaring that Jesus is Lord. Friends, we don't have to figure out what we're supposed to be doing with our time as a local church. Jesus has given us our marching orders. Friends, every week as a local church, we gather with confidence and preach the gospel with boldness, knowing that Jesus has saved a people for himself. And David here should also be a model for us of confidence that one day, Every local church, a true gospel preaching churches, will see the fruits of our labors as we see people worship King Jesus. What are we to be doing until that day? We read in Matthew 28, starting in verse 18, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Uh, Members of CCBC, that means every time someone hears the gospel and is converted, that is one more person who begins to worship Jesus as Lord. Every time a sinner is ushered into the kingdom of God through repentance and faith, they begin to call upon God as their heavenly father and Jesus as their Lord and Savior. Beloved, every time someone gets born again, another flag for King Jesus gets planted in the world. Every time a local church is planted, a whole fortress for Jesus is rooted in the world. Every time the local church gathers on the Lord's day, together with one voice, we worship the Lord our God and glorify his name. Friends, there is no rival with our God. There is no competition. God, Adonai, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit is God and God alone. 
May we never be ashamed that we know the one true and living God. But friends, even something as glorious as that, we can let it slip out of our minds just 24 hours after church. We can forget that one day the whole world will acknowledge the God we serve is Adonai. Friends, sometimes we can be like soldiers laying on the beach asleep while the battle wages on all around us. Friends, that's why, like David, we need God to constantly teach us. We need God to constantly show us. We need God to constantly revive us and transform us to make us more useful and thankful in his hands. Did you notice what David prayed in verses 11 and 12? Teach me your way, O Lord, that I may walk in your truth. Unite my heart to fear your name. I give thanks to you, O Lord, my God, with my whole heart, and I will glorify your name forever. That's a really interesting prayer, isn't it? Unite my heart to fear your name. It literally means bind my heart. Join my heart with yours. Make me wholeheartedly committed to you. The next time you're at a wedding, pay close attention. I'm sure everyone wants to see the bride's dress and the groom cry. That's fine. But if you want to be super spiritual, pay attention to these two things. The vows that are exchanged and the rings that are exchanged. The vows are promises. Promises between a man and a woman to care for one another, to keep one another, to protect one another, to stay committed to one another. And then the rings, when they're placed on the finger, is a symbol of those promises. A promise to be united as one flesh with one another until God separates a husband and wife at death. Here, David is in some ways praying, Lord, renew my vows to you. God does not need to renew his vows to us. He's always faithful. He never forgets. He never goes lapse. But we do. Friends, we can be double-minded, can't we? We can begin to try to date the world and commit spiritually adultery on our Lord. But our Lord is always bound by covenant to his people. I think we should adopt this as a normal part of our prayer life. Unite my heart, bind my heart, wed my heart as one with yours, Lord. Friends, that's what we do here at CCBC every time someone joins this church. They have to sign the church covenant. What is the church covenant? They are a summary of the one another commands of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Tonight in our members meeting, we will stand and recite the church covenant together. What are we doing? We're renewing our commitment to Christ and to one another. When we take the Lord's Supper and we remember Christ's dying love for us, we are also renewing our commitment and love for him and for one another. And every Lord's Day, when we hear God's word preached and taught, we hear God speak to us. When we sing, we edify one another with the greatness of God on our lips. And when we pray together as one body, we are asking, unite our hearts to fear your name. Uh, some visitors and some members have commented that we pray a lot here at CCBC. Sometimes those prayers are long, might be a little new. I would say if you invite any visitors, love them ahead of time. Tell them. Friends, we should never pride ourselves on praying long prayers as an in and of themselves. That doesn't mean anything. It could just be hot air and a waste of time for some. But prayer, if it is the litmus test of our strength in God, I think Christians and churches ought to slow down and pray more, not pray less. Author Michael Emlett warns against Christians doing this. He says, as non-urgent as it may seem, a consistent decrease in individual and corporate prayer points to a spiritual erosion in progress. Friends, pray that CCBC would remain a praying church. Pray that we would keep God as the center, God being exalted in all our petitions. 
Friends, a prayerless church is a dying church. But a prayerful church will be a church that is growing stronger in the Lord. God alone is worthy of our worship and our highest devotion. Number three, as we conclude, we should pray because God is always willing and able to help you, even when others oppose God, oppose you. We've already covered most of what this last portion of the psalm is. We know from verses 14 and 17 that hateful and ruthless men, a large quantity of them as well, had opposed David's life. But why did they do that? Why did they try to seek his life? Well, remember what David said. They did not set God before them. Earlier in the service, Jacob read from John 15. Jesus did the same thing to his disciples. He says, don't be surprised when the world hates you because of me. If they hated me, they're going to hate you. I want you to notice Jesus' logic for why they will do that. If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. Remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they kept my word, they will also keep yours. But know that all these things they will do to you on my account of my name, because they do not know him who sent me. Hatred towards God's children is the love language of Satan's children. If people oppose you because of your sin, well, you need to examine yourself. Acknowledge your fault and be reconciled. But we should not be surprised when people oppose us because we obey Jesus. Friends, whether we are facing conflict in our home, conflict in our jobs, conflict in our school, conflict with our government, conflict in the church, the Lord is able and willing to help us. Remember, the weaker we are, the harder we lean. About four to five years ago, Noah and I were given tickets to watch a, national, a Washington Nationals game by some friends in our church. Before then, my only experience at a Nationals game was sitting in the nosebleeds. Kind of had to squint to see the players. But this time, the experience was different. We got the tickets, walked into the stadium because he knows directions better than I do. We finally got to where we think we need to be. And then we handed our tickets to the ticket master, if you will. And as I was just expecting kind of like a, well, you're up there kind of a thing, the ticket master said, well, Mr. Boylston, <laughs> come this way. I thought, wow, people are respectful in Washington. This is wonderful. So we're walking and we're walking and we walk through this beautiful restaurant. We, we walk down to not just the 10th row, not just the 9th row. We, we go all the way to the row behind the dugout. And there's Bryce Harper when he still played for the Nationals. Sad day when he left. But he's standing right there like we could touch him. And we realized, we're sitting right here. It's the best seats in the house. And then all of a sudden, someone came up to me as if I was at like a nice hotel and said, sir, would you like something to eat and drink? I thought, are we in a dream? I said, well, yeah, sure, I'll take this and this. And how much does it cost? Oh, well, don't worry about it. Okay. Well, finally, I saw a lot of people in our section going up a row. So I said, well, well, let's follow them. No, let's go find a restroom. We go up to this, this building, and only certain people who have the band had access. As I walk in, there's food everywhere, and it's really good. And I said, how much does it cost? Then, are we supposed to be here? They said, well, sir, you have the band. You, you have those seats. You can have as much as you want. I didn't realize that we were put in VIP. For one moment in my life, I felt famous. Unlimited food. Unlimited refills. We feasted, didn't we, Noah? For one night, I was treated like a celebrity. One night, it was feast, unlimited, unlimited refills. Friends, sometimes we ask the question, why should we pray to God? Because his goodness never runs out. He treats us better than we deserve. He says, come to my table. You are welcome into my family. 
You need mercy, come to me. You need grace, come to me. You need forgiveness, come to me. When you've bombed it and failed it, come to me. My goodness, my forgiveness, my faithfulness, my grace, and my mercy does not run out. Notice what David has grounded this whole psalm in. Psalm 86, verse 5. For you, O Lord, are good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Psalm 86, verse 13. For great is your steadfast love toward me. You have delivered my soul from the depths of Sheol. Psalm 86, verse 15, but you, O Lord, are a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. Oh, my friends, why should we pray to God? Because his goodness never runs out. If you've come to know Jesus, the best is still yet to come. Life is hard but God will remain good all the time. Raising kids is not for the faint of heart, yet God's patience with us in our failings remains constant. Being married comes with its own set of challenges, but God remains faithful to preserve us so that we may remain faithful to our spouse. Singleness can be lonely, but God will never leave you nor forsake you. Sin ruins our lives and leaves scars, but God is full of compassion and ready to forgive. And ministry is super messy, but God is able and willing to help us and strengthen us to do his will. Earnest prayer is self-reliance leaving the heart. Among many things God is doing through our prayers God is changing us and showing off his goodness through us to an onlooking world. Let's pray. Father, we can come before you morning, noon, or night. Because you are good and you are forgiving. You are abounding in steadfast love to all who call upon you. Father, I, I pray that we would never forget that your goodness does not run out. Your faithfulness, your mercy, your grace, your patience. Lord, it is abounding and it is steadfast. Lord, we pray that today you would cause us to be a praying church. A church that prays earnestly that your name might be hallowed among the nations. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.